Murtaza, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Uh, I've been very excited to speak with you because Gen AI has been uh, a very large topic. I, I feel like 2023 was dominated by talk of AI, uh, and I look forward to discussing that with you. But before we get started, uh, please introduce yourself. My name is Murtaza Haider. I am a professor of management at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. I am a director of the Urban Analytics Institute, and I write a weekly column uh, for National Post on the economics of cities. Yeah, sounds great. And you have a lot going on. And I'm sure that that's given you a very good view into what we've been experiencing for, I suppose, some of the, the hype started with ChatGPT's launch in December of 2022. And since then, it's just uh, it's just gone off. But you mentioned that you're a professor. So let's start there. Um, or I, I guess first we should start with, like, what is AI? What is Gen AI? Do you want to define those terms so that everyone's Absolutely. on the same topic? Absolutely. Um, again, because we are in the infancy of this field, um, I don't think we would have definitive definitions for it because the field is evolving. But essentially, um, the application of deep learning algorithms to create um, answers to find solutions, to be able to mimic human thinking, to be able to mimic human speech. That's the generative AI. Or to be able to classify and categorize things. So, for example, now that we're looking at it and we realize ChatGPT and others have, have brought this to people's attention, but uh, back, let's say go back 10 years and uh, eBay had these deep learning algorithms um, that were looking at the um, materials, things that you were looking at. Let's say you are on eBay and you saw a shirt with a certain color, certain certain texture and a certain pattern and you liked it and you were about to bid for it but somebody else got it and you didn't get it because they had these deep learning algorithms that were able to actually find other material, other alternatives that were on eBay that resembled your choice of color, resembled the patterns that you liked, resembled the cloth or the, the cutting that you liked. And they were able to then propose to you saying, hey, you missed that, but here's another one that you can bid for. So again, um, deep learning, machine learning, neural networks, these are the tools that have enabled us to come up with um, intelligence or artificial intelligence. And it's still in the infancy. If people are scared, they're scared with a one-year-old child. Um, wait till it becomes an adult. <laughs> it makes sense. And as we discuss again, this is a constantly evolving field. Uh, there are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of different players who also don't fully agree on, agree on everything. And so given that misalignment, um, it is quite broad to your point, and there is no narrow definition for any of it. Uh, but you mentioned that you're a professor, so let's start there. Like, from the academic perspective, what are you seeing in terms of AI? How is it being utilized, and what are some of the expectations? So, universities, though claim to be at the cutting edge of technology, they're actually reluctant to adopt technology, and often they find ways to to push it, push the implementation to to a later stage. So at this stage, if you look at universities across the world, um, some are uh, restricting any use of AI, such as ChatGPT. Um, others are cautious about it. Some are encouraging. So um, essentially, uh, let's say academia, they are concerned that students can um, use these tools 
to come up with solutions for assignments and submit them as theirs. And this way we wouldn't be able to confirm or or validate that they have learned what we wanted them to learn. So the, the, the aspect of our job that relates to assurances of learning, that we can assure that you have learned something, we wouldn't be able to do so if students are able to submit convincing uh, deliverables as assignments, as exams, and that were taken uh, or completed by by computers. So yes, there is a genuine reason to be concerned about it, but at the same time, it's such an enabling tool. It frees us from these mundane, repetitive tasks. So setting up assignments or grading them, automate their grading could free up so much of hours, hundreds of hours of students or TA times and whatnot. So again, there are those who are afraid of it, uh, probably these were the same people who were afraid of the calculator when the calculator was invented. Um, they said, no, you should continue using slide rule and calculators are bad. And there are those who think that there's a genuine threat that uh, our generative AI poses where we would be unable to differentiate between an individual's work or what the work was that they submitted was done by a computer. So again, it's very early in the game and it's very difficult to know um, which way, which side will prevail. But looking at the past 500 years of technological innovation, I don't think there's any chance that we will be able to keep AI outside. It will come in, it will dominate, and we have to find ways to be productive with AI and to be relevant in the presence of AI. That that makes sense, but you... Like, I'm a bit wary of AI. So when I first came out, when ChatGPT first came out, I was one of the early on people that that got on there and it was exciting mm-hmm. i was like oh my god it's amazing like you i'm just literally typing in words mm-hmm. and it's responding back to me with relevant information but you can see that there's a lot of room for abuse with that type of thing and so there is this question of ethics and you know you you just brought up the idea of a calculator and i would say that it's important for people to learn the fundamentals so for instance learn how a, the concept of addition works instead of just going and like typing in two plus two into a calculator you should know how you get to two plus two mm-hmm. and that is one of my fears is that we may lose some of that i feel like there's so much possibility but i i feel that we need to have a good solid approach onto how we're going to allow these technologies to come into our societies uh, just because we do still want to retain a certain way of life True. I mean, look, every technology would have the potential to be abused. Um, a kitchen knife is a good example. The purpose is to cook, make food and whatnot. But then again, a lot of domestic violence involves violence with kitchen knives. Um, baseball bats are amazing tools to entertain people. But again, blunt force trauma and you see baseball bats. So again, you're looking at very essential tools that have been abused for violence and whatnot. So the intent of a technology or a product uh, cannot automatically limit all possible uh, misuses of that product. So I'm using knife and a baseball bat as a as a metaphor, uh, but you can also see how it relates to artificial intelligence, the tools that are becoming um, uh, available and uh, are evolving. Now, you say that there are certain things that we would like to maintain. And one such struggle that schools are having now and over, over the past 20 years is recursive writing. Um, so um, when we were young, when I went to kindergarten and, and junior school and whatnot, I was taught how to write and how to how to how to write 
cursive um, and it was a big part of my early childhood education right and then there were people who still were there at that time even today believe that writing by hand um, has a different way of committing information to your mind and you are able to retain it longer but then now I look at my own children, I look at everybody else. Kids are very comfortable um, uh, with, with computers, with cell phones, and they're typing faster with thumbs and whatnot. So um, are they going to be less intelligent than us who learned how to write on a piece of paper and a pencil? I don't know. I don't think we have done that kind of studies to see if the students who never learned how to write excessively by hand were any less intelligent, but we would like to maintain that way of life, for instance. That's a different thing. But the question is, the material question is, that if children lose, let's say not just reduce, but lose completely the ability to write by with hands and that just go on with life's typing, will they be any less intelligent? Will they be any less sympathetic? Will they be any less passionate? Uh, will they be any less productive? Will they be any less um, uh, conscientious citizens? I don't know. I mean, we associate a lot of these things with just writing and say this makes people better. But, but um, over time, we'll see. Maybe if there's truth to it. I don't believe it. Uh, but I, I don't have definitive answers. Yeah. Well, th those are fair questions. And I feel that part of the issue with this for some folks, the struggle is that it's happening too quickly, right? It, it sort of came and it just dominated. And again, like I look at uh, the financial industry, for instance, and everyone wants to evaluate it, but I see good utilization there where it's like, because we have a lot of like repetitive tasks, a lot of duplicates, and we want to be able to remove those and streamline operations and become more efficient. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that and I feel it makes sense. Um, but I try to be fair and look at it from various sides. Uh, and so I can understand the hesitation because I have a bit of it myself, yeah. admittedly. Um, but my hesitation is most, mostly around how it's going to affect the lives of people and how it may not be for, for the best of everyone. And, and like a good example of this is even like data aggregation, right? Mm -hmm. This will make it so simple. And now pretty much you're going to have an entire profile of someone right at your fingertips within minutes. And is that a good thing? Well, let's take financial institutions as an example. Um, in 1994-95, I worked for one on the trading floor. It was one of the largest trading floors in Canada. And the reason I was hired was that that trading floor on the desk that I was on um, had hundreds of thousands of executed trades, but they have not been able to uh, collect the commissions that the participating brokerages owed to them. So, you know, when you execute a trade, mm -hmm. um, you get a commission, they get a commission, but this particular brokerage had not done a good job in recovering. And that outstanding uh, commissions, they were in millions of dollars, right? Okay, so now that's a challenge. So they hired me to look into it. And the way it was happening is that I would receive papered, printed records of trades, which I would enter into a computer. Then I will analyze them and then figure out who owns us what. That's how the technology was working at that sophisticated workplace. Then I went up to them and I said, why are you giving me this data in papers? Do you, you're printing it, so you already have it computerized. Why don't you just give me all of that data for how many years of backlog data, and I'll work with it. So they gave it to me instead of on paper, and that's like four people working with paper, right? Mm -hmm. They said, okay, they just took a chance. They gave me the data. I brought it into a database at that time, and then in a matter of week, I analyzed backlogged years of trades and printed the invoices and gave it to them in a matter of two weeks. 
Now, that's what technology does. That's something that had accumulated as a backlog because they were doing it the hard way or not embracing the technology. And it, it took them, and every day that they, they would move forward a day, they would be backlogged by another two days. But technology, adoption of technology, just giving up paper and just focusing only on digital data, we were able to catch up in a matter of weeks. Is that a bad thing? And the financial institutions will try to optimize the use of technology, including AI. They're not the best at adopting things. They are very uh, conservative as well because they're afraid. The bigger threat right now is is um, is hacking, um, cybersecurity. Um, that's a significant threat all financial institutions, all large institutions face. So they would be very careful um, in adopting um, the the. Um, tools that become available from artificial intelligence. I think uh, at this stage, the adoption rate would be slow, even though we see things are happening very fast, but I would say it would take many more years before you would see AI embedded in the financial side of the financial institutions. You may see chatbots. You already know they're chatbots because there's a limited um, um, there's a limited number of answers that a chatbot has to respond to. So they are already in place without even AI. There's simple uh, tools that they can use. And then you will see more of those, that they will replace human uh, responders with these chatbots. And, and that's how it's going to go forward. But at the end of the day, um, Will artificial intelligence be running some some very heavy-duty uh, decision-making in financial institutions? Maybe, but not today, not next year. It's going to be far. Um, I don't know how far, but it's going to be far in the future. Well, they've already had some AI and ML, particularly like for back office activities and mid office, because again, that's just a lot of like, there's a lot of manual work that can be cut out, a lot of duplications, um, and that is an effort to streamline. So I feel that there's actually like a lot of good applicability for for different companies, be it the financial industry or other industries, to to utilize AI because it'll free up people to to focus on other tasks instead of like you know to to your point like maybe going through like invoices or mm. going and checking transactions and double and triple checking. So I, I I'll give you another example, and again um, I'll tell you how it works and how it won't work. Um, a lot of people of color, um, immigrants, visible minorities, they face increasing challenges in getting jobs. And one of the concerns they have is that if their names are unfamiliar, so hiring managers, when they see a CV, um, their first thing they notice is the name. And if the name is difficult to pronounce, if the name is difficult to uh, to spell, um, there's a reluctance. Um, and that's not an explicit reluctance, but then again, that's where it starts. Academic papers have been written about it. What they have done is they've taken the same CV, just changed the name, same credentials, and see how many people would get a call if they had a Western-sounding name versus someone who had a non-Western-sounding name. Right? There's a lot of academic literature that shows this. The question is, what if we replace humans with biases with algorithms, artificial intelligence, deep learning algorithms that evaluate the, uh, the, the intellectual capital that an applicant is bringing um, and then be, make the decisions based on, on what they have to offer rather than how their names are spelled. So again, you, you could see that um, a machine, when it's not trained to be biased, when it's trained and focused to be just look at the, at the fundamental data, 
uh, can eliminate all those uh, un undesirable outcomes. Again, machines can learn from our biases and could be equally biased, but at the same time, as humans, we don't have the capacity to be unbiased. Machines can be unbiased. We are born with it, and we are we know some of our cautious biases, but we are unaware of our subconscious biases. So in, in many instances, I would think that the machine learning algorithms would do a better job in clear, creating um, equity and creating equal uh, level playing fields. Um, take uh, redlining as an example in mortgages. In America, it used to happen. I don't know how f prevalent it is. In the United States, that they would redline areas, and if the, someone applies for a mortgage with a certain name or a certain district, uh, the f financial institution would be less inclined to award them or give them the mortgage. You could replace that with algorithms and, and see if they would be discriminatory as human beings have been in the past. So there are options and ways to make this the economic landscape more equitable, more fair, more level playing fields for all. But at the same time, when I've said this, I can also tell you this, that these algorithms are very good at learning our biases because it's human information that they take to mimic. And if we are inherently feeding biased information, these algorithms can, equal, can be equally biased um, as we are because they would not know the difference. See, uh, so the bias is a really interesting conversation when it comes to this. And I've had this conversation before uh, with other guests. And it, it really comes down to like how, yes, you can train the system. You, it can do an, a phenomenal job. It can be very efficient. But you're, it always comes back to what bias exists. And I, I still haven't seen a solution for how do you eliminate bias because if if you're if we're to be completely transparent, you know, even if you go within a particular industry, let's say, it, it tends to attract people with uh, similar thinking, similar mind frames, and so even if they don't subconsciously mean to be biased, well, guess what? That's just who those people are. That's how they think. That's how they feel, mm -hmm. and. You do sort of get into echo chambers as well, yeah. whether it be with your colleagues or, you know, it be with different teams you're with. Uh, and how do you eliminate that? And, it, and I don't believe that there's a malice intent in any form where people, where some of the people that perhaps are inputting the data are saying, oh, I want it to be biased. I think it is just a subconscious thing. And so how do you eliminate that? So I give you an example of how that bias exists and how you can eliminate it. And you can try it. Um, let's say you take an artificial intelligence-powered translation tool. You can go online, and there are several of these browsers and software companies um, that provide the tools to translate. Right? You want to translate. Um, so I give you an example of two phrases from Hindi um, that you need to have them translated into English. And that will indicate or suggest to you where the biases come from. So if I want to say this person is a doctor and that person is a nurse, um, I would say in Hindi, wo ek doctor hai, wo ek nurse hai. These two statements have no gender in it. I just said that person is a doctor and that person is a nurse. I, the 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 way Hindi is constructed, is, is the, the, it's gender-free conversation. Okay, now you translate it and try it with any of those translators. It would say, wo ek doctor hai would be translated into he's a doctor. And then when you try to translate nurse, you say, she's a nurse. Now, how did the software know or this algorithm know that if it's a doctor, it has to be a male or more likely to be a male? And if it's a nurse, I'm going to substitute she. Because I didn't ask or reveal the gender of the person, but the algorithm picked a gender in translation because there's no 
you can't say it is a doctor or it is a nurse. You have to pick a gender in English. So that's a, the, the indication of a bias. Where did the bias come from? Because the language, the corpus that was used to train, to translate it, um, use these references again and again and again. They may have used uh, nurse and female genders more, more uh, frequently than nurse and male gender. And, but that create a bias in the in the way the software or the algorithm operates. But you can limit it. You can say, well, you know, um, we know this bias now. We can just write one or more lines of code in it and preempt it from actually assigning gender on purpose or randomize the gender as people would translate. So with the algorithms, once you know there's a bias, once you know there's a problem, you have the ability to correct that. How do you correct a bias in a person? How do you... I suppose first would be to bring light to the fact that there is bias. And then once there's awareness that the bias exists that and that person's aware of it, they they would usually want to change. I don't believe that there's met too many people out there who would intentionally want to remain biased once they realize, oh, actually, you know, this is not the right frame of thinking or um, I've miscalculated or I've misunderstood. So I think it, it does start with transparency and being aware of the problem. Yes, in ideal world it works, and in the real world we go to wars because of our biases. You know, we, so so it, it's not that easy. Human beings are very reluctant to change behaviors and 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 the views they form, and it takes tremendous amount of effort and willingness to change. My experience in life is that people are the least likely to change. Uh, computers, you can force them. Algorithms, you can force them to pivot. It, with just a few lines of code, and it's guaranteed that it's not going to behave differently. With human beings, you don't know. And I'm not saying that human beings are inferior to machines or the algorithms. So I'm just simply saying that some things work better with machines, some things works better with humans. You can't hug a, a, an algorithm. An algorithm won't sit with you and comfort you uh, and console with you when you need someone's help. That's very much human thing. There's there's part of us that you part of us is human, which is our brain, and the machines can actually perform the tasks that our brains do. But the other part is our heart, which is the 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 soul of our being that allows us to empathize with people, that allow us to be of of care to provide this this feeling of duty of care that we are we are able to share with people we know people we love and with strangers um and 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 the machines are not good at it they will never be good at it so therefore i think we should just look at which part of the the entire spectrum of being alive being being active in this world what things that humans can do better than machines let's focus on those and what things that i mean machines can calculate faster than us i mean that's a known thing why bother competing with machines on that so that's why i think the focus should be where we excel. We excel in compassion. We excel in sympathy. And we excel also in hatred, but that's a different story. But, but computers can't do that. So I think uh, people who, who work with their hands, people who are high-touch, low-tech, their lives will be phenomenal going forward in the age of AI. People who are like me, who program or code, they'll find it difficult to be relevant because computers can code better than us. Mm. It's, yes, it, it's true. And I feel this goes back to creating that harmony between human and machine because there are things that we are good at and there are things that machines are good at. And so uh, what you described is sort of the example of like taking the best of both worlds. Correct. So let's, uh, and it's interesting that you you brought up that robots can't be caring and affectionate, uh, or sorry, you said algorithms can't be, you can't hug an algorithm. And that's very true, but uh, 
robots that utilize algorithms uh, can be caring in the sense that they can care for your like physical well-being and um yeah, the, I, the the robotic nurse, for example, yes. a machine that brings medicine to you, right? But again, the machine won't hug you, nor will you try to hug. Uh, I mean, look, the, the physical world that we live in, um, our pets, dogs and cats, uh, dogs especially, they are an immense source of comfort and care and love. And, 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 a, and a dog would not be as smart as a computer or an algorithm, but you will not trade your dog for a robot. That's not going to happen. And that's the reality of it. There's a physical, emotional, psychological being, um, which we are, which all animals are. And, and that would continue to function and thrive in the presence of robots and machines and algorithms. Uh, I'm not afraid about it. I'm just thinking that we should focus on not trying to do things that machines can do better and focus on things that machines can do better or can never do. And that makes sense. That's logical. Uh, I suppose then the question is like, there, there's me, the people have different opinions. So like, for instance, there's some people who feel that humans shouldn't drive and that, you know, you should just use auto, auto drive on, switch to EVs, have auto drive and just let the machines drive. And uh, I've actually had a few different discussions about this with different folks because I like driving and it's not something I'm going to give up. So even if, you know, a machine can do it better than me and I'm not saying it can't, it's still that I as a human get a certain enjoyment out of it and I don't want to give it up. And I feel like we have to um, be accepting of that. There are things that machines are better at that you can say they're better at, but people don't want to give up those activities and so they shouldn't have to. I agree. I agree. I don't think machines drive better than humans at this stage. We're still very far, like the autonomous vehicle, there are five stages of autonomous vehicles. We are not at that level five yet. And probably it's very far, far away. Again, the reason being false positives and false negatives that machines can't detect. I, I was, you know, I was driving a, an autonomous vehicle a few, few weeks ago and a raccoon ran across the street and he didn't see it. And I saw it. Um, and um, so so I know where we are with personal experience for autonomous vehicles. But then your argument is if you'd like driving, why should you give it up? And that's a fair thing to do, right? Like if, if the machines can cook better omelets than me, then should I stop cooking omelets? I love making omelets, right? And if somebody des designs a foodie machine that does it better, okay, good for it. But then I still would like to do it myself. So I think what, what makes us happy and what gives us sense of purpose and enjoyment, that what makes us us would continue to prevail in the age of machines. I mean, think about it. Um, the earliest machines, steam engine, one of the first machines, set of machines that came about in the 17th century that led to the first industrial revolution, um, locomotives, um, sewing machine it came in the 19th century, about mid 1800s. Before sewing machines, everybody's clothing was uh, stitched by someone in the family. Right? You wouldn't go to a to a mall and say, "Hey, I'm looking for buying this." You know, there were no malls, there were no clothing stores. If you were wearing something, someone who knew you stitched it for you by hand. And then came the sewing machines. And nobody complained. They didn't say, you know, I'd really like to do this needle and thread thing, and it will take me a, a month to make a, a simple dress for you. But that's what I would like to do. If you want to do it, do it. But then again, no one 
turned away from sewing machines. And that's the earliest 18th century sewing machines or 19th century sewing machines. Now you see how far that industry has come along. So machines have showed up uh, over the past, I would say, 400 years, and they have made our lives easier, simpler, more reliable. Um, there are Let's look at health. Uh, if if there's someone who has a problem with a knee, um, before these advanced algorithms, um, we would have to operate on the knee. We have to cut it open to see what's going on. Then came these machines, they, these MRIs and, and CT scans. And now with machine learning, even better ability to understand and, and infer information in an MRI scan. Maybe, I'm not saying it is, but maybe better than a physician that the machine can read the MRI scan better and infer information from it. Uh, but without opening up the knee, uh, the ability to scan, the ability to see what's going on inside and then decide whether an operation is needed or not. These have all been technological developments involving algorithms, involving machines that have made our lives better. Um, and, and and telemedicine, people can be administering, Can there will be soon technology that a physician or a surgeon can operate on someone remotely from Toronto and the patient could be in Mozambique, right? So these things would enable our lives and livelihoods better. Um, it's just that um, there would be already be, always be concerns. Um, these algorithms can interfere with the political process. They can interfere, interfere with justice and equity. There's a possibility that they can do that. But un, if you keep that aside and you just focus on the um, uh, these algorithms improving things, like signal timings, right? So it, it, there was a report just a few days ago that Toronto has the third worst traffic in, in the world. I don't know how they found that about, uh, about a, a bus, but, but it, it is true that we have uh, problems. And one thing is that our signals are not fully synchronized, these traffic signals. Um, there are about, I think, 4,000 in intersections that are instrumented with traffic signals. But imagine these algorithms that have already been there, but imagine the next generation of algorithms that can optimize signals across Toronto, the city of Toronto, and if there are three to 5,000 intersections, we optimize their timings in real time to adjust traffic so that you can save a minute here or a minute there. So these are the technologies that will improve our lives and they've already been improving our lives, making a big difference. And the question for us is whether do we would like to embrace them or shun them away. I mean, there is, and I'm not going to name names, but there are people who say, no, we don't need to improve intersections or, or, or throughput traffic throughput. Let's make traffic worse in downtown Toronto so people can switch to cars or bikes and whatnot. I don't agree with that. The, uh, that way of thinking that we, if we make people's life worse, only then they would see that they can walk, bike, or take transit. Um, but then again, I would argue that let's make the best use of technology and get more throughput capacity through our road system by moving cars faster and, and in a secure way. I completely agree with you on that. I feel, and I believe uh, we were ranked like the worst in North America in terms of commute time because of all these issues that you just described. Um, and yes, the technology can help us and we should utilize it. You brought up a few points and um, one of them that I wanted to hone in on for a minute is uh, our demographic changes. And uh, you brought up medicine and this is very pertinent to that in the sense that we we have an aging population and we don't have the capacity to care for them all. And we, we spoke about robots briefly earlier, but that does seem to be the future where you're going to have uh, robots that take care of a lot of your health needs because our system just unfortunately cannot handle it. So, uh, you know, it's very sad, but I've heard a few stories now of uh, elderly 
uh, individuals in like uh, different uh, care homes or like different uh, residences. Um, and uh, they'll discover bodies like a few days later. And it's because and a simple solution to that would be like, you know, maybe you go and like you knock on everyone's door once a day at least and make sure that they're there or people sign out if they're leaving. Um because things like that are not good and they shouldn't be happening. But a part of the issue is, again, the capacity where they don't have um, the manpower or whatever it may be. They don't have the resources to do those types of things. And maybe you do have um, robots, you know, like uh, I it could be as small as like a Roomba robot vacuum. Right. And, and this is just. This will be, of course, designed for health needs instead of cleaning. Uh, and it'll just patrol the area, you know, make sure you're okay, make sure you're feeling good. Um, like the fact that our, our phones and our watches can detect our heart rate and they can measure even like your blood oxygen levels. If we have, if we utilize some of these technologies and, you know, if some, uh, and if we have AI helping us where if some, if there's a trigger for something, oh, you know, this person, it seems like uh, they they might be going to cardiac arrest because of these signals that are popping up, then we can get help for that person immediately instead of waiting until something bad happens. And that's just one example. And uh, your other example about uh, using AI to improve uh, traffic by aligning uh, the, the different uh, traffic lights, I think, is a really good example. Um, it's funny. Which was the case in New York some 20 years ago. Yeah. So Manhattan had figured this out 20 years ago. I lived there in 2001 and two, I guess. Um, and the if you are driving um, in, in Manhattan um, on, high, I think it's called Route 10 or something, uh, and you get green after green after green after green. And this is before AI and machine learning. They were able to physically synchronize signal, uh, intersections. And now with all this technology that exists, and it's so inexpensive now, um, we still haven't done that. But but I want to stick to this this elderly population for a second. And, and I'll give you one solution um, that AI can really help and then tell you what happens in the absence of it. So let's say we put a camera or cameras in elderly homes, in people's rooms. As long as they're walking, we see they're walking, they're fine. Um, but if they fall or they're not getting up, the camera will will detect it and it can alert. But the problem is privacy, right? Like why would someone give up that privacy that they're moving around and being completely washed in, in real time? Um, so that's not a good thing. But machine learning can eliminate a human person watching the feed. You can have a machine wash the feed. So it, an algorithm is watching you, not a human being. So your privacy, in a way, is not compromised. And if you stop moving for a long period, the algorithm will detect. And only then a human being will be alerted. So you can actually replace humans with, with algorithms and, and protect people's privacies while they can still move around. So elderly moving around in their room or in their house, and they're being monitored 24-7 by algorithms without any compromise to their, their secure, uh, with, their, with their privacy. Now, a few years, now a little more than a few years, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a heat wave in France. And it, it's a quite a series of unfortunate events that happened. Um, it was a long weekend, and um, people would go with their families um, to to the south or to the beach, to the water. Uh, so people uh, taken their children and were out for that long weekend, and then the heat wave stuck, which means that the grandparents were back in Paris, were back in the cities, and the heat wave happened. But at that time, their children and grandchildren were away for three, four days. 
the first estimate was that about 10,000 seniors perished in that heat wave you know, over a weekend. Then they revised the estimate and said there were 25,000. Then they came back and said it was 50,000. And I think the number was much, much larger when they accounted for the unexpected deaths that happened during that period, that weekend, and, and complications, deaths resulting from complications because of that heat wave. None, if you had the, any of this AI-based technology, smart monitors, even um, simple solutions as uh, uh, motion detectors, you would have figured out that these people were in distress. And they were alone. Just by coincidence, people were away that weekend, long weekend. There was tragic, excessive death of seniors. Technology provides you with the opportunities to prevent that from happening. It creates other problems, but at the same, at the initially at least, you have simpler solutions using algorithms and sensors and whatnot. Sensors are becoming ubiquitous. Your refrigerators will be equipped with sensors. They will tell you, will alert you with a text saying, hey, we noticed that you are near a grocery store and your fridge will tell you saying, I'm low on milk. By the way, don't forget to buy that. I mean, that's pretty much straightforward um, from an implementation point of view, the kind of sensors and algorithms you need to detect that instead of three bags of milk, you're left with one, right? And then the machine sends you a text saying you are in a grocery store based on your GPS location. Please pick up a, a carton of milk. These solutions can make us our lives easier. The example, the fridge example is trivial, but saving lives of seniors just by motion detectors and heat sensors and whatnot is, is much more important. We can save people's lives, we can improve the quality of their life, and we can make it easier for them rather than having them taking care of them in hospitals where it's extremely expensive. Even places like Canada do not have the means to treat all the seniors with their complications in hospitals. And when this wave of illness hits us in about 10 years, um, we are not prepared for it unless we find technological solutions now. It's it's sad, but very true. And, uh, and you know, it sort of goes again back to that point of we can use this technology very effectively. We can use it to better the lives of so many people. Um, and so it, it comes back to how we utilize it. And there, and again, like there are so many good use cases. Um, and there will always, and we spoke a bit about this earlier, but there will always be room for abuse. And it's a matter of safeguarding. And I, and I feel this is also where ethics comes in, right? That that's a big portion of it. How for and you brought up that camera uh, example, for instance. Like, how do you ethically like have cameras? Like, I can I can very easily understand why people wouldn't want to be monitored by a camera. Um, but again, you know, if they if there is a serious medical issue, and if you're able to alleviate some of those concerns by saying, hey. A human won't watch you at all unless certain sensors are triggered, and that's only to make sure you're okay. Um, I feel that would alleviate uh, the stress for a lot of people. Um, and it also goes back to, I suppose, building a system of trust where I trust that you're going to do what you're telling me to do. Uh, and this is where we bring in some of the regulatory bodies, perhaps, and also this is where the industry that's going to produce these technologies is going to have to do some work and establish that trust with consumers. Correct. I mean, if the focus should be that we should align AI and all of the technological developments in, in parallel with our value system. Uh, we should let the values we collectively and personally hold to define the parameters in which modern technologies and artificial intelligence and other algorithms will be implemented. And I, if there is a there's a one-to-one -one correspondence with innovation and our value system, 
um, I see less of chances of unethical behavior. Uh, there will be a tiny minority that will always try to 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 be um, to to find ways around it. Um, but then again, even before we get to technology, if we raise the next generation with this this focus that you have to be ethical, you have to be moral, and there will always be ways to to sh- for shortcut. Um, if you want to compete in 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 performance sports, uh, don't take uh, these these steroids. Right? Um, they are there, but don't take them. Be ethical. Be moral. So if we build on the ethics and morality of 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 our of our future generations, we then can trust them that they will be responsible users of technology. There is no technology that I can think of that cannot be abused, but that shouldn't be the case of not using them or developing them. Uh, very true. I feel that we do need to think a fair bit about how we're raising the next generation. Um, and I've had this conversation before as well, and it's and it's really interesting. Like the um, when when we think about all the technology that's prevalent and how it's impacting the younger generations, and uh, you know, we we spoke earlier about the example of the calculator and the idea that you should learn the concept of how math works before you just start using a calculator. Uh, there's a also really, really big question about critical thinking, where if you decide now that anytime you have a question, instead of taking a moment to think about it, you're going to go onto a search engine and type in, hey, how do I do X or what does this mean or why does this happen? It, it does t- it does erode our thinking capabilities. And um, I was given an example by another professor about what's happening in Scandinavia with misinformation, for instance. So instead of saying, hey, we're just going to protect you with all these algorithms and make sure you're never misinformed and just have warnings on everything, they're starting to teach children in schools that you need to do research and that you shouldn't believe these things. So whatever you see on the internet, do not believe it unless you know for certain, unless you receive information from very reputable sources and you receive it from various sources. So it's this idea of now fostering this idea uh, of fostering research and critical thinking capabilities and to just not believe whatever you see. So, uh, and we're speaking about AI and deep fakes are a very real thing. And they're, they're becoming a very big thing where uh, recently someone showed me a clip um, of, uh, I mean, currently Davos is taking place and someone showed me a clip of a speech that was made there and it was completely fake. It wasn't real at all. And I was astonished. I wasn't expecting that, but things like that do emerge. So you do need to teach everyone, you know, particularly at a young age and have them develop those skills to, to think instead of just believe everything they see. Absolutely. Now, misinformation can come uh, in various forms. It could be deliberate, it could be accidental. At this stage of generative AI, um, it's uh, accidental more common than it wasn't intended to be. So they, they say that generative AI has a problem called hallucinations. It hallucinates, it makes up things. I think it's it's more like George Costanza syndrome. Now, um, if you remember this show Seinfeld, and in Seinfeld there was a character called George Costanza. There's a very classic scene in that show that as Jerry Seinfeld, the lead in the show, is leaving the restaurant, um, Josh Costanza stops him for a second. He says, hey, Larry. And then he says a line which is phenomenal. It says, hey, Larry, it's not a lie if you believe in it. (laughs) And that's Josh Costanza's problem for generative AI right now. 
it doesn't know when it's lying. It just believes everything. So, so having said that, um, uh, how do you how do you train people to to um, tell apart what's true, what's false, what's real, what's fake? Um, uh, I'm 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 going through this challenge at the moment. I'm teaching an undergraduate course in research methods, and I'm teaching a doctoral level course in research methods. So, I, on one end, I have got third year students, and on the other hand, I've got these PhD students who have to take this course with me, which is research methods. And the content is quite different, but the challenge is the same. And the challenge is how do I teach them to do research at a time when so many other tools have become available? I, I, the, when I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto, I had to go to the library every time to read a journal and then stand at the photocopying machine and photocopy that paper or article that I had to read and then bring it back home with me, right? And that's how we did research, physical research. It's a lot of uh, walking, going to the library. If the book is not... I remember writing to a professor in New Zealand um, by mail asking her that I heard about a paper she had written. I haven't seen her. If it's true, could you kindly send me a copy? Three months later, she sent me a copy by mail. That was how things were done. Now, research is different. Um, pretty much all of the recent last 20 years of intellectual output um, is available digitally. Students do not need to go to the library to read a paper, to read a journal, to read a journal article, to read a book. Um, it's available to them, not just in, in the university, but at home, even at their cell phone with their smartphones are able to search the universities. So the question is, information has become readily available. That burden of accessing information, technology has simplified it. But the challenge still remains. How do you know what you read makes sense? How do you know what you read is honestly true? There's a, Again, going back to academia, we have a large number of papers being redacted now or being, uh, being uh, uh, taken back because we found faults with it. Some were accidental, some were deliberate lying with data and other things. So again, it's not easy to know what you see is true. I mean, what is truth? I mean, I don't know what truth is. I mean, people have belief, people have faith systems, people know they know the truth, they have the true God or they have the true, true, true sense of beliefs. The other ones, half the world says, no, you don't, right? You look at 7 billion people, 8 billion people and how they pray and how they believe, and they all believe to be what they believe in is to be true, but the neighbor doesn't agree. I think truth is a very big threshold. And as a society, as collectively humans, we have no clue what truth is. Even without AI, even without these fake, deep fakes, we don't know what truth is. If that was the case, we would know which way to pray, which way to do, but we don't. We we have difference in politi uh, political beliefs, we have difference in religious beliefs, we have difference in economic beliefs. We all believe that what we have and what we believe in is true, but the other person doesn't. So, so thinking that AI would be the reason for 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 these fake or or, or take us away from the truth, um, it could be only if we know what truth is, and I don't know what truth is. Well, I, I feel like that's a bit of a philosophical question. Where what is the actual truth? And that's uh, a question that has been asked many many times through the centuries, and uh, it's a question that will continue to be asked because. Like, I don't think anyone knows what the actual truth is. And then the question is, the truth about what, right? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, it, it's like there's trillions of things out there. What do you want to know the truth about, actually? Yes. So, uh, I mean, if you look at the wars, the p past wars, right? Um, there are uh, communities that believe they were the victims of that aggression. And, and they uh, demand an apology. 
um, uh, from from the aggressors. And and the those the, who they are accusing of aggression, um, they don't think they did anything wrong. And I'm not saying it's a matter of 500 or 5,000 people. I'm talking about millions of people are in this conflict where the aggrieved is asking the aggressor uh, to apologize. And the aggressor says, no, that's not true. We never were responsible for those aggressions. So you ask yourself, if that's the case, is it possible for us to be able to differentiate? I think the, the, the trick is to go back to values and, and go back to our value system that we will know, we will promote anything that improves the livelihood of the society and the, li- the, the, the ability of the society to heal, the ability of society to act in a cohesive manner. Um, if we bring those values forward, if you say, that, you know, my welfare is not just my welfare, I'm better off if my neighbor is better off, right? If that's the case, then you build societies. But if you d- minus the neighbors and you just focus on your own welfare, then you don't have a society, you have a chaos, you have a mob. So, uh, in, in all these evolutions of systems and societies, and I'm no neither expert in, e, in any of those, I believe as long as our value system is focused on us rather than me, um, we do better. Um, and if these algorithms allow us to go in that direction, good. If they take us away from it, then yes, we should resist them. Right. And I feel like there is, you know, there is a lot of room for, for AI to actually get us to that area of us because it can it can help alleviate a lot of the burdens that people people have and so sometimes especially if you're living through difficulties it can be difficult to think about the large collective because you're just focused on your own survival and so if we can now implement these technologies to help people prosper that will definitely shift that mindset of i versus we, and it will take us to more of that, perhaps that we area. Um, again, this is just speculation, but I, I do believe that part of the, re- you know, self-preservation is a real thing. And part of the reason why there is often a focus on I is because you are trying to protect yourself. Correct. You know, that's an instinct that you have yeah. inherently. Um, and so then the question is, okay, well, we want to get to that phase of we're a society, we have to do what's best for us. And, you know, that's why there's obviously always different topics of, you know, us as Canadians, what do we need? You know, us as Canadians, how do we improve? And in order to get there, like, there there are a lot of different things that need to be done. And, you know, we've meant one thing that we can work on, for instance, and we've talked about, we've spoken about during this conversation is the healthcare system. You know, uh, if we fix that, we will alleviate the suffering of so many people and it will allow them to actually focus on creating a better society for us all and participating in that society instead of, you know, being worried about their own health and being concerned on why they'll be able to get the assistance that they need. Correct. So, uh, yeah, so I, within those regards, I feel like there's a lot of application uh, for AI. Uh, we spoke about this earlier, but I wanted to go back to uh, uh, language models or particularly like the chatbots. So I feel like this is an area, particularly within the financial world, um, that is very useful. So uh, my background is in wealth management. And uh, when I was I work with an advisor and I remember that there were uh, obviously a lot of different activities that we had to do. Uh, and there were protocols. So like if you wanted to, for instance, issue a check or a wire, or if you wanted to deposit securities or what have you, there was a process that you had to go through to complete that task. And um, 
whenever someone new comes on, of course, they don't know what that is. And so it's usually they're either like on like in the internet or whatever other resource they have, they're, they're scouring that to try to figure out how to, how to achieve these different tasks or there's someone they're helping. Now, you brought this up earlier, but imagine you just have a chatbot and you say, hey, I need to issue a wire. How do I do it? Right. And then it lists instructions right there for you. And it, it makes the whole procedure very simple. And I feel this would be a great onboarding tool um, for for new recruits, because now instead of spending some someone more senior spending hours upon hours training them on like very basic things, even um you don't have to do that because they can just go to this resource, they can ask and they'll get a step-by-step instruction on how to do it. Because most of these corporations, they do have a how-to section, right? But it's just, uh, it's it's a bit tedious and you have to go in and you have to look through, okay, I go here, I go here. But now imagine it can just like pop up right in front of your face. Well, let's, let's look at large corporations. Let's look at uh, companies that have um, financial institutions, right? The smaller ones are 40,000, 50,000 people, right? If it's a large uh, uh, co-op or um, um, credit union. And then you have the big five chartered banks, they have 60, 70, 80,000 people working there. So in any given year, you would expect a few thousand people leaving and a few thousand people coming in. So uh, onboarding, could be a is a humongous challenge for them because there are thousands of people being onboarded every year, and generative AI could be an amazing tool because you can simply after onboarding basic necessary training, if there's anything left, they can ask a question, and 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 they it would automatic it will look at all the answers that you have in your answer database and it will provide that answer re- faster right there when it's needed rather than to wait for the person who has the answers to become available. And these are the advantages. Um, Going back to this course that I'm teaching right now, it has a little bit of statistical programming involved. And in the past, I had to teach them. Now I don't. I say, I'm not going to teach them. You, this is the tool that I'm making it available. If you want to do something, you can ask Generative AI, how do you code this problem in this particular programming tool and it gives you the code right there. I want them to think critically as to what they will do once they have the answers. So my focus has moved away from teaching people how to code is and it's moved to teaching them to think about the questions to ask. What questions are worthy of our efforts? We shouldn't be asking questions that are useless or don't contribute to the productivity or well-being of people. So what questions we should ask that have not been asked or answered before? And then let the machines and algorithms help us find the answers. And then once we have the answers, how do we interpret it? How do we analyze them? And how do we turn insights into actions? So I think this middle part of this logistical part of programming, coding, running analysis, if that can be done by computers faster than us uh, and automated, um, and we focus on asking the right questions, getting the right answers, and then turning answers into actions, that just expedites our, 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 our productivity, expedites our ability to, to achieve goals, and I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, this this whole notion of, look, look, think about it, there are 15, 18 million people 15, 16 million people who are employed in Canada right now, right? And any given year, you will have about a million plus people as an economy. I think about 2 million people, if you look at Canada-wide, 2 million people will be starting a new position in a given year in Canada. 
And imagine how much effort goes in into onboarding and, and using generative AI, how can you expedite it? There's, there are returns to this investment collectively that the economy can can benefit from and empower employees. I mean, an employee who would have taken three months to six months to become productive, productive for the firm could be productive in weeks or days. So again, I think that the potential to deploy these tools for higher productivity are much higher than the realistic harm that could come from it. I'm not undermining the harm. There is realistic, probable harm that could come. But I think right now, the way things are, benefits out, far outweigh the, 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 the harm that I see through these generative AI models. See, the main challenge is, I think, if you really think about it, people are worried about jobs, right? By automation, by robotics, um, jobs that are being done by people now will be done by machines in the future. And if we can create an economic system where people are paid, whether they work or not, because profits will still be made. If, so we have to find a way to shift from income taxes to profit taxes, taxes on profits and uh, rather than income taxes for people who are not working or whose jobs become redundant. So there is there's a whole transformation of the way the state um, collects revenue from businesses, from persons and whatnot, um, realizing that a lot many people doing a lot many jobs may not be required in the future. And that's not a bad thing. This experiment with basic guaranteed income, which is happening in Canada in some parts and else, elsewhere, are ways, are pathways to figuring out a future where we, all of us would not have to work nine to five every day. And that wouldn't be a bad thing. I feel that people do need something in their lives though. So it may not be a nine to five, but um, perhaps I, can, I, I don't, can I, I don't can know I how jump that jump in and work. link this to, our, to what we discussed again? Let's say somebody's job becomes redundant, but the state says, well, yes, you know, we are taxing the profits. We can still pay you for what you will. But now instead of go, staying at home, you can actually go and help a senior who do not does not have a family, and we were thinking of putting a robot there, but now you can go and volunteer there. It's not a job. You're getting paid regardless. So when robotics and automation um, and algorithms uh, replace a lot of current jobs being done by humans, that opens up this world of uh, um, volunteering, that people can volunteer because they would have immense amount of time for people who need help. There will always be people, millions of people, tens of millions of people who would need care because of illness, because of age, because of other factors. So imagine if if there's a society where someone was had a job that is no longer required, but is still getting paid because there's a system around it, and then there's a request or a requirement that now you have to volunteer. So we may create some problems, but they will create they will solve other problems as well. For sure. And I I mean, there, there's a lot of people who sort of will even paint this like pick world of like a utopian world almost where it's like you don't have to work, but that will free you up to do other things. And where I see this move with Gen AI is I feel that, first of all, I don't think that people are going to lose jobs in the amounts that we think they are. I think that a lot of people will be trained to do other things. I also think what it'll do is it'll actually sort of push people into different fields. So like in Canada, for instance, uh, we've been having like a shortage in blue collar work for, for a while. And 
I feel like it might actually open the door up for people to explore different opportunities and perhaps go into the jobs where we need more people. And I think it'll also push people to create more things. So because the algorithms will be there to sort of do the uplifting of what you have already created. And now this will allow people to be more, have more time to be more creative. Um, I remember there were stats and these are from years ago, but for a long time, uh, Canadians were very innovative. Like we had a lot of entrepreneurship. And the reason behind that well, at least the reported reason was that it's because we have a safety net. So someone can say, oh, you know what? If I do quit my job and I do decide Excellent to go point. and work for myself, yeah. um, I'll, I'll still be okay because I thankfully do live in the society where I will have some support if things don't work out. And if things do work out, then I am helping my society by giving back, by creating Excellent this new point. innovation. I mean, imagine if if I want to take a risk and it if, and the risk is that I may lose my job, uh, I would be willing to do more. I would be more likely to do so in a society where I know there's healthcare. That if I don't have a job, my kids would still get healthcare. My wife would still get healthcare. If I have a health problem, I still can go to the hospital. And if you take that away, um, then there's a risk that if I lose this job, I lose all of that, right? So it's this presence of safety nets, this universal healthcare that we have in Canada, is a tremendous uh, um, benefit to the society, and it should be creating much more riskier entrepreneurial activities that we don't see in Canada. But I, I want to take you back to to uh, to about 150, 200 years ago, um, and we go back to England, right? And and there was a show on television on Netflix, I think, called Downton Abbey. Um, it was, oh yes, I've heard of it. Uh, uh, yeah, so it, it was an amazing show. It's about an British aristocrat and how um, he had this humongous mansion, and there's a hundreds of people employed just to take care of that mansion and the family. And the family has a husband and wife and three daughters, and that's about it. But there are hundreds of people employed to take care of these five people. And then they have their associated land and, and they have uh, these sharecroppers or, or, or farmers who live on their land and then they raise crops and then that's how they live their lives. Okay, that's all fine and dandy. Good. What surprised me when I was watching Downton Abbey is that one day I said, how many people were in this, I think it's called servitude um, in England? It turned out that at that time when the biggest industry in England was mining, there were more people looking after these uh, lordships and ladyships and their mansions, and then they were in mining, right? And then again, you see that 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 segment of the population, that labor force has changed. Um, other than royals, British royals, not many people have butlers around, right? Maybe how many mm -hmm. butlers will there be? Maybe 5,000. At one point, there may be 500,000 butlers. I'm just making these numbers up as we go. But the reality is that the downtown Abbey lifestyle is gone, right? People are driving their own cars. They don't have butlers and chauffeurs and whatnot. Um, so, but then people found other jobs, Right, they're not looking after Downton Abbey, this building, but they're doing something else. And every time when there's a massive shift in labor, massive shift in technology, or the massive shift in structure of the economy, people find other things to do. It's not that when that that way of life ended in England, that you have millions of people were unemployed and they remain unemployed for decades or years. Um, and if nothing else, humans are very creative. If nothing else happened, they start a war and employ everybody. So, so you you, you know, wars are also a way of employing people. I'm, I'm being cynical here, but but the reality is that economy finds a way to innovate and employ people. 
and get them moving. Um, and people who are looking for jobs often are able to find jobs. So AI will be a disruptor, much bigger disruptor than I can imagine right now. Um, and what others can imagine right now. It would be a disruptor because it has abilities that we didn't have in the past. It's no longer how heavy a machine, how heavy a product or a stone or a rock that you can lift. I mean, the, the pyramids in Egypt were built with human human um, or animal power. Like all those stones were carried to the top by, by humans or animals, right? Now you can build those pyramids with machines much faster, right? But it doesn't mean that we had to continue using human power to build things the way we did. We have cranes that can build things faster. AI would push those limits much, much far than lifting weights or moving faster. AI would 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 start touching at that notion where we, what we, a thing that we call soul. You know, we have a body and fit, but there's something inside of us that's uh, us, our ID, that's soul. Um, and for lack of a better word, AI would come very close to it, and 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 will knock on our our souls, and it will make it presence felt. And at that point, we may be a bit more scared than we are now. But then we have to find ways to contain this and use it the, for the best, for the betterment of humanity. Dogs were not all, always this friendly. I mean, if you go back a few millennia, dogs were not domesticated animals. It took some 10,000 or 100,000, I don't know how many years, thousands of years to domesticate these. But we were able to make them man's best friend. If we can turn dogs into man's best friend, we can, I think we can make AI into man's best friend as well. That's an interesting way of looking at it, uh, for sure. Now, I, you mentioned earlier during your intro that you write a column. And I, I am curious to know how AI, Gen AI, and, and this whole revolution is sort of being presented to the public and how people are... You, I, I, sort, I suppose the question is, like, how are people informers such as yourself who write columns and publications who are on the news like what is their view of of ai gen ai and how are they presenting it to the public how are they enforcing informing sorry uh, the public and how and educating them on what's to come yes so i mean i don't particularly write about the artificial i wrote a um, an op-ed for Globe and Mail um, in January last year when artificial this generative AI just came out and, and I saw a lot of people were scared. So I, I wrote something and I said, don't be afraid and here's how it will pan out. And some of the things it did pan out that way, other things I was completely wrong, which is fine. But the thing is, um, the there will be an opportunity for all of us to experiment and interface with AI. And then those who are in media, who are able, who are speaking to larger audiences, just by sharing their experiences, um, they can actually perform this task of educating others. I write a column. Um, now, before AI became generative AI became such a popular thing, I, I know that one of the wire services in Canada was using AI to write news stories. So, uh, and we did an experiment. We said, okay, what if we write um, a Canada-wide story about homelessness, let's say, right? We, what's happening with homelessness in Canada. But that story could be different for Vancouver or within Vancouver, different for um, Abbotsford or Burnaby um, or Victoria or 
uh, or places on the island, Vancouver Island. And then you come here in Ontario, the story is different for Toronto, for Barrie, for Mississauga. Homelessness in Mississauga and Brampton is different from homeless in Toronto. So you could see that there's a national story of homelessness, but then there are local stories. So the question was for us working with this wire service, what if we write a national story? Right. So we have this construct and then we have a database of relevant information for all smaller towns and cities, small and large towns. Can we train an algorithm to create a local version of that story? So we write one story for Canada, but the algorithm writes one story for Toronto, one story for Vancouver. And the reporter in that newspaper can get that generic template story and then personalize it for their publication. That was happening a few years ago. This is not, I'm talking about now, this is before generative AI came up and, and, and there were lots of these experimentation happening all over the world. It's just that op- chat GPT made it publicly known that this is possible. But in all these circles, these things were being done, experimented with. And I think by showing people that well, I'm very open about how I use AI, I use it all every day. I pre- create charts and graphs for my publications. I use AI. Um, I do research all the time. Um, I use AI. I mean, I wanted to know in the subway if I if I were to know how many people uh, lost their jobs because of calculators. So I asked AI how many people lost their jobs and say, well, in the United States, there were 10,000 human calculators, people who were humans, but were, their job was calculator. You ask them, what is 5,942 multiplied by 6,803? 6, and they would tell you the answer. So those people lost their jobs. Uh, maybe they knew intuitively or were very fast with slide rules. When calculators came, their jobs were lost, but then 300,000 people got jobs manufacturing calculators, right? So the number of jobs lost were less um, than the number of jobs that were created. I got this information from AI. So I, I, I do a lot of my search, uh, research through AI. It saves me time. Um, I did um, a complete analysis of two newspapers. Um, I got uh, stories from National, uh, from Toronto Star and Globe and Mail. I put them in, in, uh, in files and then had AI um, judge if there was a bias in stories about one thing or the other because I can judge the bias but then I'm biased myself in judging other people's bias but the algorithm isn't. I said which element um, of this conflict uh, this newspaper favors and which one they don't and the AI was able to do that right so these are called the large language models or um, and excuse me and 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 the algorithm is is unbiased because it uses the corpus and, and then it's able to use uh, the way sentences are structured and can take emotions out of it can take the uh, can extract the 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 favor if something is being favored if something is being imposed the, these natural language programming algorithms can easily do this and they don't have to be trained very very differently they they can be trained randomly or quickly not randomly so all of this is i'm doing it and I'm using it. It has made me far more productive. In the past, I would have to find my graduate students, assign them the task. If they are available, they would do it. If they are not, they would, it would take time. But as a researcher, I've become far more productive in the last 10 months alone. In fact, I, used, I, I say this, when I used to go to conferences, um, I would see my colleagues from University of Toronto walking in with five of their PhD students and 10 of their, uh, their, their master's students. And here I am with one graduate student, and I'm looking at them and saying, they have far more uh, intellectual capacity than I do. How would I compete? They've got 15 students working with them. Well, that imbalance that was there last year is gone. 
I have the productivity uh, and research capacity of 100 PhDs at my disposal through ChatGPT, through OpenAI, through other uh, generative algorithm, uh, AI uh, platforms that are emerging. So it is more as far as research is concerned, for businesses, for 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 academics, it is far more empowering um, than than anything that we had in the past. Yeah, it definitely gives you a lot more capacity, uh, as we've mentioned before. And I, I do I do find it interesting that uh, you brought up the example of these different newspapers and how they were already employing. Uh, sort of a version of AI before the public became aware of it. And of course, ChatGPT really democratized it and it brought it to the forefront because for the first time it was available to anyone. Like anyone can go create an account mm -hmm. and, and use it. And it was very simple as well. Like it wasn't well, look, hard. Let's look at academic cheating. Okay. Uh, there, there are... S there were SMLs out there. There still, still may be. So basically, if you are in my class and I assign you an essay and you have means, you have money, you'll go to these websites and say, hey, I need a, this is my assignment. I need a 2,000 word essay. And they'll say, we'll, we'll charge you $200. You pay them $200 and then they will write an original essay for you. That's cheating. That's called plagiarism. But GPT democratized even that. Now you you can go online and say, "Hey, write me a two thousand word essay," and it will write you. So it it has uh, democratized that that what was a privilege of the wealthy to be able to pretend uh, to 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 cheat and then present their uh, somebody else's work as theirs. It has democratized plagiarism. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, somebody say, "Well, it's a bad thing." And I say, well, it, what was available to people because of their wealth or be, because of their status that they could buy written essays, um, they can not compete with those who didn't have the means. So either everybody would cheat or no one will cheat. And I think I lean towards the fact that now no one will cheat because it has become so easy to cheat. So actually, let me ask you about that then, because there there were a lot of uh, concerns about this plagiarism and just getting... Uh, chat GPT to do your homework for you. <laughs> that, that was a big theme last year. How are the academic institutions trying to uh, find this? I remember when I was in school, we had like Turnitin, I believe it was called, yes. where it would go and uh, it, whatever you had copied, it would, it would highlight it, I, I suppose. But even a system like that, like the fact that it has and that was using AI at, even before AI. I mean, how do you know that, how do you, how do you think Turnitin can detect if it was written by you or someone else. So it has this clustering, it has this uh, algorithm that can compare the structure of two, their, the, what they have in their corpus against what you have submitted. And it determines this probabilistic model of what is the probability of this sentence or this paragraph coming from another paragraph that they already know exists. And from those algorithms, they are able to say this is 10% copied, 0% copied, or 100% copied. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. I, uh, but yeah, so like, I suppose it goes back to then the fact that AI has been around us. It just was not for everyone. Yeah. And now it is for everyone. So now that it is for everyone, what are the academic institutions doing to, to combat plagiarism? Um, see, for us, plagiarism is the ultimate sin. And nothing is more um, damaging for the repetition of an institution, an academic or a student, and then being accused of presenting someone else's work as yours. And 
what we are doing in academia is reinforcing the moral value and, and the message that we are more interested in what you think. We are more interested in your intellectual output. And if we design assignments and um, in a way that encourages people to share their views rather than a generic assignment, say, well, what is the 10 good things about democracy or what, or what, what is inflation? Um, what does it do to economy? You can ask that as an assignment or you can give an assignment saying, in your personal life, how has the increase in the price of essentials affected you? And how do you think collectively it affects your neighbors and the city? Now the person is writing from their own experience. They don't need a chat GPT to write a generic description of what inflation is and what it does to the economy and how to combat it. There's a generic answer for it and the chat GPTs of the world can do a better job. But then if I ask you, how has your life changed? Are you buying less food now than before? Um, or are you buying cheaper food now than before? Are you com compromising on caloric intake? Have you, uh, comp have you foregone a vacation that you had in the past? Now, when you structure your questions in a way that allows people to share their personal experiences, then there's a there's a way of encouraging people not to even look at ChatGPT. I mean, how would ChatGPT know how inflation affected me when somebody asked me my information, my personal experience? So we have to personalize education and assurances of learning where our questions are not generic, and that could be answered by a machine, but our questions are more specific to an individual. And, and, and once we do that, these tools becomes irrelevant. Right. I think, and this is my own personal opinion, because this was something I struggled with. Particularly when I write, I tend to be very concise and short. And so whenever there was a requirement for, let's say, a 2,500 word essay, that was an absolute nightmare for me. Yes. Because now I have these ideas that I can essentially share in one paragraph and I have to expand that paragraph to pages. Yes. And I I was not a fan of that. Absolutely. And I feel that that is one of the ways that we can actually make uh, academic life a bit more meaningful where it's now you're expressing yourself in your truest way in your most authentic way instead of trying to but that's, that's, go within these parameters. But that's an academia, acad that's our fault as academics because how many of our students once they graduate are required in their practical life to write 2,500 words in one go? There's no such assignment in your life. If you graduate from um, a business school and become um, a business analyst and then gradually move up in the business world, I don't think you are ever asked again to ever write 2,500-word essays. So we, we, we adopted some constructs from philosophy and history where there is a need to write a 2,500 or 5,000-word essay or academics writing publications, but we didn't use that construct and imposed it to the, all the student body and saying, you all should do it. I write a column. My editor says, if it goes over 650 words and you're still not able to say what you have to, there's something wrong with you. So I have to start and finish an argument within 650 words. And I love it. I used to know a, um, a, um, an editor at BBC who would say that if it takes you 40 minutes to write what you're writing, a column or a story, and it's 650 words, then you haven't perfected the craft yet. right? So again, I encourage students at times with the sign saying, one page. I just want to know one page, but personalize it. I want to see what's happening in your mind. I don't want to know the generic definitions. 
500 words, that one page, single line, I need to understand what you are thinking. And if we encourage people, if we encourage employees, if we encourage the workforce to bring their personal thinking forward, only then innovation will take place. If we keep encouraging them to resort to what is the generic answer to generic problems, we will never be able to learn where the intellectual and unique capacities of our workers are. So we have created these problems by ourselves only because we have not fully utilized the potential of the workers who are already with us, let alone the workers that we will hire in the future. That's very true. And I feel that uh, again, this is an area where AI can help. So uh, I, again, mentioned that I was in in the wealth industry before coming to CGI, and a part a part of that was there was again a lot of um, what I would call administrative work that had to be done, and it wasn't meaningful work. Meaningful work was actually interacting with your clients. It was uh, interacting with your clients, it was working for them, it was solving different problems that you had, it was creating solutions for your clients. Um, and I feel that AI can definitely help with that. And especially if I were to look at the wealth industry, they are moving towards this area of spending more time with the client, right? Providing more personalized, more customized service. Uh, because that industry, like pretty much every other industry, um, is being led by expectations that have been set by players outside of the industry, such as your Netflix, Google, Amazon, where they anticipate your needs and tell you what you need before you even know you need it. And now everyone else has to sort of play catch up. So when I take that example of wealth management um, and this idea of people being able to do me more meaningful work, people being able to actually uh, interact more with their clients instead of now sitting behind a desk and doing administrative tasks. We can eliminate a very large percentage of that admin work uh, by utilizing uh, Gen AI. You know, one of the ex earlier examples that we brought up was chatbots, and that can help with onboarding. But, you know, what if now that chatbot had an ability where it can actually take input from you and then fill out forms for you yes. so that you don't have to do it? It That would make everyone's life much easier, and it would certainly streamline things, and it would... Um, I, it would eliminate, not fully eliminate, but it would greatly reduce errors as well because it would ensure that there were parameters. And so if you entered something that was invalid, it wouldn't accept it and would let you know, hey, I think you need to look at this again and make sure you enter the correct information. And there, there's like a whole loop of that usually occurs whenever an error uh, is raised and you would eliminate that loop Um if there was no error to begin with because all the information that was entered was good right from the get-go. Absolutely. The, the, not only that entering information in the first go, but uh, eliminating the re need to re-enter that information. For example, that brokerage example that I gave you earlier, that someone typed up all the trades, then printed that paper, then I got the paper, then I had to re-enter those trades in an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. So we were re not only repeating the task unnecessarily, but we were creating opportunities for error. And the, once the information is correctly correctly entered, why is there a need for me to re-enter that information? And in doing so, 
make a mistake. So AI could actually not only capture information, you're saying entering information, I'm, I'm talking about capturing information, that it enables to capture the information, so eliminating the need to even enter it physically in the first place, that it's able to capture the information. And and these are the things that could um, make things much better. I mean, buildings could be far more environment-friendly if the sensors and AI are able to lessen the um, burden on 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 heating and cooling um, and 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 so on and so forth. I mean, the, the, if you think about the firms and and large and big and small businesses, um, we are not as productive as as the Americans are. Right? There's there's a, a big concern that Americans' per capita productivity is higher than Canada's, and and why is that the case? There are many reasons for it. Now, it has been the case for many decades. The question is, can we change that equation now? Is there a way that we can be better adopters of this generative AI than other uh, competition in Europe and North America, that we raise our per capita productivity, that we engage in higher uh, higher value um, goods and services um, that can bring us forward? There's all those possibilities. What is lacking, I think, is the realization for urgency in the public and private sectors. I don't see presidents of large firms in Canada. I don't see um, our political leaders sitting down and say, we have to be better than the world. We have to have products. I mean, the other, the, we were in Italy this summer. I took my family and I'm in Milan and I'm looking at these three churches. They're called the Three Sisters and they are um, historic churches in a big piazza. And, and you're looking at the amazing architecture and the genius of Italian engineers, and, and they built it a few hundred, if not a thousand years ago. You're looking at these churches, and then I turned around, and I saw this big modern building, but all that building was entirely covered by an ad, and the ad was by Samsung. So I'm looking at South Korean products right there, rivaling the genius, the architectural genius, of, of uh, accumulated over thousands of years in Italy. And then it hit me and I said, when was the last time we as Canadians were traveling and we saw a Canadian product that is being used or marketed to others? And after BlackBerry or Nortel, you can't say the third name, right? Mm -hmm. So so that's where we are. I think um, I don't see uh, the urgency both in the private sector and in the public sector that we want to be the ones to create products. There's lots of reasons for it. People say we don't have the startup culture here. We don't have large investors. We don't have risk capital here. But a lot of this could be substituted with generative AI now. And we, if we turn our education system, if we turn our businesses, if that the research, R&D part of it, I mean, you know, if you buy a car um, in your R&D or you put a new elevator in your building, um, that is still counted as R&D if, if the work being done is there is R&D. But if you really invest in people who are actually scientists, who are engineers, who are mathematicians, um, who will create new products that people would like to buy, that's the kind of R&D investment that we need. A lot of AI would, is, is heavy-duty maths. Is heavy, is, these algorithms are not simple to do. Um, but if you look at our math scores relative to other countries, Canada's high school and junior high math scores are falling relative 
positive to others. So we are not really doing the things we need to do to create that prosperity that we all desire, but that prosperity is not going to come through traditional means. We have to be at the forefront of this innovation. We can't be just be the users of AI. We have to be producers of it so that people can use and can and we can create value from it. I think there's a need for do it. it it's, I think there's a need for uh, to realize the urgency for it. It can't be left to the government. It can't be left to the private sector. It can't be left to the universities. All of us have to come together to say what we see is at the tip of the iceberg, there's far more to do in terms of innovating in generative AI and then making value-add products from it so that it can create wealth and prosperity for all. I, I agree with that. And I feel that a, a large part of that is culture. And, and we do need to improve on things within the Canadian landscape and bring back that culture of innovation and risk-taking and entrepreneurship. Um, when I when I look at our regulatory environment, for instance, and I know that it gets blamed fairly often, particularly in the financial industry for why we don't innovate as quickly as we can. And I would say that it, it is a, it's a fine line. There There is a balance. So I... The, I guess I suppose the easy example is what happened with the old 08, 09 financial crisis. In Canada, we, we did quite well. And a large reason for that is because of our regulators and how they regulate our financial system and how and ensuring that uh, they don't have too much debt, not too much leverage, that they're not being too risky. And during time of crisis, that actually came in handy and we were protected as a result of it. But at the same time, uh, one of the big initiatives that's been undergoing for the last little while is open banking in Canada uh, and wanting to uh, have that sort of w- wanting to have that university in the country because there are other geographies that have it. And there, there's been it's been lagging. So I actually am not sure exactly where it is right now. Last I heard that in the fall, they were meant to bring out a report. That's the governing body that was doing open banking in Canada. Um, and I actually don't know what, what came of that report, but I, I don't believe that it was anything big because there were no headlines announcing anything of no. open banking in Canada, right? And so people tend to forget about it. Um, so we do definitely need to undertake actions that will bring back that spirit of entrepreneurship. And perhaps part of it is the regulation. It's okay, we need to go back and assess how much risk are we willing to take for for the payoff? Because there's always an opportunity of cost, right? Uh, you, You can't be fully safe because you lose out. And of course, you don't want it to become like the Wild West where anything goes because that's not safe either. Um, So I feel that we do need to become better. The one area where I saw a large amount of improvement was actually crypto and digital assets. The Canadian regulators were, for once, ahead of the U.S. regulators. And and that was nice to see. So that shows me that there is an appetite in Canada for us to want to advance and do more. And our regulators are aware of it as well, and they are trying to aid in whatever ways they can. But of course, these things are a lot more complicated and they're yes. much bigger uh, questions and there's a lot more involved that the two of us can solve just sitting here. But these conversations are being had and I feel that's a very important step that people I mean, become I mean, aware look, of this. We have to ask this question, fundamental question. Why Nortel was able to succeed and became a global product? Why BlackBerry, Research in Motion, 
became successful and became a globally recognized product and what led them to for, to their for their uh, downfall why were we not able to grow them um if nokia can grow and continue to grow why we didn't blackberry grow we need to learn from from these mistakes or these experiments or experiences we we talk about um we we are in, we look at tesla we we look at twitter or x um we look at elon musk all the time but we don't ask the question he was here at queen's university studying engineering but then when it came to create and innovate he's no longer here you look at open ai and you look at the chief technology officer i think her name is mira murari she was in bc as a grad as a as a student high school student and then we are then she's gone in the us and the innovation is taking place so we have you know we we think of us as place that oh look at the crisis in 2008 and 9 and what a big mess they created with these uh, uh, collateralized debt obligations and and and, and this mortgage backed securities so all of that is true but how is that that a place that has all these problems attracts Elon Musk and uh, Mira Moradi and, and and create Google and create OpenAI all these products that people who were here went there to create but they never created it here and what we ever we created wasn't able to go global uh, we had these ballad um, um hydrogen powered bus systems in Vancouver not much came out of it there's innovation that happens here but it doesn't take goes goes to scale and we even see people going through the canadian system um and ending up in the us becoming these amazing innovators we have to do some soul searching here as why are we a conduit for those who create and innovate and just bring people from globally here and then pass them on to the us rather than having that innovation take place here rather than all that value at being created the highest gdp per capita in canada is in alberta Alberta has as much higher GDP per capita than when British Columbia or Ontario it's not because of innovation it's because of the extractive extractive sector economy and then you ask yourself when will we realize that our relevance in global economics is not because what's in our heads is because what's underneath our feet because we have been doing through mining and 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 as soon as we realize that we have to do better we go move to move from mining to to intellectual uh, capital and 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 technologies like ai um only then we can do this but with falling math i don't have much hope but there i i i like to believe that there is hope and that we can improve uh and again we we spoke about this but it does start some of it does lie with the education system um and ensuring that uh children are learning n- not just learning like uh i suppose uh formulas but like learning really how to think and i i always come back to this because i feel that like critical thinking Correct. is very important and you know you brought up the example of italy for instance uh with with the churches um and the modern buildings and uh, i have an interest in architecture and i i love architecture that you know i guess we can call it historic architecture it was beautiful you have castles and you had these beautiful cathedrals and all types of buildings I haven't really seen any modern architecture like that. Yes, in, there's in, a reason for it. In in a long time, yes. right? And Do you know the reason for it? Uh the reason I, believe... I I have a hypothesis. I think the the architecture that you admire that was built 200 years ago or 300 or 500 that wasn't built on 10% ROI. 
There was no, there was, there's an emperor, there was a sovereign, or there was a church that was commissioning it, and there was no budget limits. Now whatever we built has to be built on a 10% ROI. People are looking at return on investment. When there is a requirement for return on investment, you don't build castles, you build just towers in the sky, nothing else. There's no room for curiosity. There's no room for cre creativity with the kind of ROI expectations that we have. But when you have sovereigns, kings, queens, and, and, and uh, popes commissioning architecture, they're not bound by any ROI requirements, so you can see architecture um, as as glorious as we see, but that was built with no financial strings attached or limited financial strings attached. That's my theory. I'm not an architect. I'm an engineer, so I don't know my <laughs> No, it, uh, it sounds like a valid theory. I feel part of it is also that we've sort of moved away from imagination to a certain extent uh, where we have... Uh, I, I don't like to... I know certain people like to blame technology for things. I don't like to do that. But I do feel that we have become too reliant in certain areas. And it has come at the expense of our more creative side, if you will. And if we, and that's why I think that striking a balance, having harmony is really important. It's what we need to achieve because we need technology. It can help us do a lot. It improves our life greatly. It allows us to do meaningful things as we've discussed. But we also need to retain that human element, as I like to call it, yes. where we, we don't lose ourselves within this sort of technical bubble, if you will. Great. I agree. I think um, in terms of education, um, as long as we don't lose sight of the fact that we are moral human beings, we are moral beings, and that there's morality, there's value system. And if you continue to uh, re, um, uh, repeat it and inculcate um, in, in the future generations to come and to say that whatever technology create, create it for the betterment of yourself, your neighbors, your society, your city, your country, um, for all human beings and for all beings, um, then uh, you, you, you give them a sense of purpose, but with sense of responsibility as well. Um, I think there's tremendous amount of imagination. I mean, look at video games. When I was a child, the video games were pathetic. Um, you know, there's one dot going here and there, and then it, you have to hit it and it comes back. And that was the state of the art <laughs> in video games. And now I'm watching um, soccer, FIFA, and basketball um, on video games. And sometimes I can't tell if they are actually my kids are playing games or they're watching real television. So imagine the kind of imagination that has gone into creating an, art, uh, an artificial reality, um, a game that looks so real that I confuse it with the re real human beings. So so I think we have empower, used imagination, but we haven't used imagination more selectively in, in avenues that would have had a better and higher a payout for us as Canadian businesses and 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 as Canadians, I think we have contributed, but we haven't contributed or 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 applied ourselves in in fields and 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 technologies that would have delivered a better outcome for us. We could we we could do better. We, that there's no doubt about it. We're not at the top, other than being third in. In, in traffic congestion, we're not third in anything else. So so we have there's a there's certainly a path forward, um, but then again, we, it doesn't have to come at the f at the cost of us being um, defined by algorithms. I, I would hate to see a future where we are defined by algorithms. I want to see a future where we define the algorithms, and and we define what they create with it, with a sense of responsibility and 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 this desire and commitment for shared prosperity. There's no point creating wealth the way it has been created in, in the US and other places where you got these 
extremely wealthy people living at the 80th floor and at the bottom of this, at the street level, you see homeless and people. There's no point creating wealth that doesn't re result in shared prosperity. Shared prosperity is what makes a place livable. And, and these algorithms, these technologies, if they are built with that thing in mind, that I, as my happiness is tied to my neighbor's happiness and my neighbor's happiness is tied to my their neighbor's happiness. That creates a sense of community and the need to desire and innovate in a way that we all benefit from it. Definitely. And I, I do have hope and I do believe that there's a lot of very good people that are involved with, with some of these technologies and they, similar to you, similar to you, they do have aspirations for a better world and for having prosperity for us all. Um, and so I, I look forward to to that future where, you know, people are able to engage in more meaningful things, where it's not perhaps it's a strictly nine to five for everyone, where there is more room for creativity, imagination, and to, to focus on society um, and to, again, contribute to society in different ways and have more, you know, more entrepreneurship, more innovation. Um, I think that'll be a very, that's a very exciting outlook and uh, I definitely look forward to it. Uh, before we leave, is there anything else that you wanted to speak about or anything you wanted to add? No, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation, this dialogue. It's really um, made me think as I was speaking. So thank you. You know, uh, I was happy to have you here and uh, I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe.